Welcome once again to our study of Paul's epistle to the Philippians. We are in chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at verses uh, 17 through 19 uh, this evening. And there's only 21 verses in this chapter. And so either, uh, or 23, I'm sorry, 23 verses. So uh, we might have two more, I think. I was thinking about putting one together for the, at the very end as kind of a conclusion as to how we could, uh, some of the lessons that we've learned through it, but I don't know. We'll see. Uh, and I don't know what we're going to do next. We may take a week or two off and then come back with uh, the next study. So I'll keep you all informed. But if you're, if you have any questions, if you don't get informed the way you feel you should by an email or something, then you can always go to torresource.com and under resources, look for the uh, study and it will be mentioned there. Right now it's called the Philippian study, but uh, it would be called something else, of course, uh, if we decide to take another book. Okay. So glad you're here with us and let's begin with prayer. Again, Father, we are grateful for your mercies to us. Thank you, Lord, for your love for us, for sending your Son, Yeshua. O Lord, for sending your Spirit to lead us and guide us and protect us and to convict us so that we might walk more and more in the footsteps of our Messiah. We bless you, Lord, for your love, for your majesty. We want all aspects of our lives to bring you glory. And, Father, we pray that you would help us as we study as we study your word, that we would not only understand its meaning, but by your Spirit, we would bring it to a part of our lives in what we do, how we think, what our goals are, and what we hope for, all based upon your promises. Lord, we pray that you would bless us with strength in this time, and that you would help us in our respective communities, and in our own families, and even as individuals, that we might walk as you intend us to walk, to live here as lights in the world, and that your word would sustain us as we seek to obey you and to be your witnesses in this world. Lord, we bless you for all of your love to us, and we thank you for your word. We pray that tonight, as we study these verses, that they would be used of your spirit to guide us, to correct us where that's necessary, and to give us strength and courage and desire to live a life in honoring you before a watching world. We bless you, Lord, in Yeshua's name. Amen. I'm reading from the ESV tonight, and as is our custom, I'm going to read the entire chapter. This is Philippians chapter 4. Therefore, my brothers, I love and long for my joy and crown Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Eudia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Messiah Yeshua. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, 
whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the Lord of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you, Philippians, yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you alone. Even in Thessalonica you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Messiah Yeshua. To our God and Father be glory for ever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Messiah Yeshua. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Yeshua, Messiah, be with your spirit. Now, obviously, uh, I have changed the ESV's translation of Jesus Christ to Yeshua, Messiah. But other than that, that was straight from the ESV. All right. <clears throat> so, Paul is coming to the end of his uh, epistle. And uh, he is uh, recounting those things that are most important as he sums things up. We're going to start with verse 17 uh, of chapter 4. And verse 17 reads in the New American Standard, Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. So he begins this verse with, Not that, the same phrase he used in verse 11 of our chapter, and does so for the same reason, to make sure the Philippian community understands his words, and what he is emphasizing, and I could have added what he is not emphasizing. In the previous verses, Paul has thanked the Philippian community for their support and noted that they were the only community who had sent him necessary provisions for his physical needs. Paul now wants to make sure that the Philippian community does not misinterpret his words of praise as though he is giving an indirect request for further gifts to be sent to him. We are all familiar with this, aren't we? And I think it's true in every era, both ancient and modern. There are those who are seeking to get more people to support them for one reason or another, and they have all kinds of ways of doing it. Some would do it by way of actually asking for the money and regularly sending you things in the mail or uh, whatever. Others uh, would do so f from the time that they're teaching, within their teaching, the, to express their needs, and would you please help me with this, and so forth and so on. Uh, others might do other methods. What Paul clearly does not do 
is ask them for more. And he wants to make sure that his previous uh, words, where he um, really thanks them and uh, and uh, and hand claps them, as it were, uh, for being the ones that have sent the necessary provisions for him. Remember, he's in prison, and in these Roman prisons, they were not ter- caring for the prisoners. The vast majority of prisoners were there because they were awaiting execution. And so the prisons were very poorly run, uh, and prisoners died very often in the prisons for lack of food and water and so forth, and clothing and whatever. So uh, the fact that the Philippian community brought these things to Paul was of great importance. But when he says this, when he gives them a hand clap, when he blesses them for what they have done for him and expressed his thankfulness, he's not underhandedly asking them to give him some more, which would have been often the case for many. In fact, what he desires for the Philippians to understand is that their care for him by providing for his needs is known by the Lord and has been recognized by the Lord himself as the fruit of their faith in him. For in aiding Paul, they have obeyed the very commands of the Lord to love each other and to bear each other's burdens. He is doing what he's saying here in this verse and in these the next two verses is a way of saying, uh, you are obedient to the Lord and he is blessing you. And Paul is saying, I'm so grateful for that as the one who undoubtedly taught them and, and uh, led them uh, at times. I don't know if all of them was the case, probably not, but some of them, he probably was the first one to announce the good news of Yeshua. Well, uh, he wants them to know that he does that in order to encourage them to continue to obey the Lord and to recognize the Lord himself uh, as the fruit of their faith in him. Recognized by the Lord is the one they want to give accolades to, and that's what they're doing. Well, and that's especially what Paul is doing. Paul wants the Lord to receive the glory. Everything is to be done ultimately for his honor and for his glory. We read these verses, one in John thirteen thirty five. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. In other words, loving each other doesn't bring glory to my to the ones who love. It's supposed to bring glory to the one who leads them, that is, their disciples of the Lord. And when they do what is right and good, he's the one that should get the honor. Again in John fifteen twelve, this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. When we love each other, it's not so that we can be seen as wonderful. Now, there's nothing wrong with uh, thanking people and, and, uh, and giving praise to people for the good deeds that they do, but ultimately, the praise ought to go to God. And again in Galatians 6, 2, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the Torah of Messiah. You're to love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your might. And what's the next? And your neighbor as yourself. And he says, Yeshua says there, that this is the sum and the whole of the Torah. He says, Paul goes on to say, but I seek for the benefit which increases to your account. Now that's an interesting phrase. 
the benefit which increases to your account. Twice in this verse, Paul uses the verb seek, epizeteo, which is found only here, twice, and in Romans 11.7 in the Pauline epistles. So it's not a word that he uses very often. It is what we would call an intensive form of the verb zeteo, to seek, having the preposition epi as a prefix. You see, in the Greek, very often to give power and strength to a verb, uh, a preposition like, in this case, upon, upon seeking, or to seek diligently, or to seek uh, as best you're able to. So it adds a real uh, amount of intensity to the, the word. He uses the strong preposition, the stronger preposition to emphasize that fact that his greatest desire is to encourage and help the believers in Philippi to grow in their walk with the Lord by having their faith strengthened and thus their obedience to him enlarged in all aspects of their lives. In other words, he's, again, he's not saying this with the hopes that they'll give him more. He's saying this to, so that they will realize that they gain their greatest prestige before the Lord. As they serve Paul, they do it as unto the Lord. And he uses very intensive words there. I seek for the profit which increases to your account. And he's, he, he, you could say, I diligently desire for the profit which increases to your account. Further, Paul uses an interesting metaphor to describe his goal of being used of the Lord to strengthen their faith and thus to maintain, even enlarge, their service of, uh, of, for the Lord. The word translated profit by the NESB is actually the word fruit, karpos. But the idea of profit in a monetary sense is surely appropriate, for it is that which increases to your account. In other words, it's like a tree that bears greater fruit. And that's why it's used here. But the uh, NASB is right when it says profit, because from an uh, agricultural uh, perspective, if you raise fruit for a living, the more fruit that is on the tree, the more profit you make. And so you could understand why the word profit, he's using that in, in this metaphoric way to say, but how are they going to gain profit before the Lord? He says, to your account. Well, who's keeping an account? He must be talking about the eternal account, which will be uh, seen and understood when Yeshua comes and takes us to him forever. Surely there will be this day of judgment, but for those who are in the Messiah, the day of judgment is not one of tears as much as it is one of being welcomed in as a good and faithful servant. It seems clear that Paul is referring to the fact that as believers in Yeshua, our growth in sanctification, that is, in becoming more and more what God intends us to be, is the true mark and assurance that we are truly his. Thus Paul longs for the Philippian believers to grow and mature in their faith, which is the final proof that they are genuinely born from above. How do we know that we truly are his? It is when we sin, we're convicted. The Spirit convicts us. Now, what do we do with that? Do we try to brush it away? Do we try to cover it up? Or do we do what we're supposed to do and confess our sins and do what is right to make whatever we've erred in to correct it 
and to give glory to God. Well, that is the work of the Spirit within us. Left to ourselves, we'd just try to get away with it. But the Spirit convicts us and brings us to a point of repentance and seeking to do what is right for those against whom we may have sinned. Not only God, but those that we have sinned against. This is why seeking forgiveness and giving forgiveness is an essential part of what it means to walk in the Spirit within the given community. This is the way the community maintains. We don't just leave when somebody gets us, does us wrong. We seek to remain within a community insofar as that community is viable and the Word of God is being preached. Thus, Paul longs for the Philippian believers to grow and mature in their faith, which is the final proof that they are genuinely born from above. It is our ongoing sanctification that continues to be a proof, a guarantee that we are His. For apart from what God does within us by His Spirit, apart from the Word of God correcting us and encouraging us and building us up, we would be able to do nothing. So, it is when our lives are more and more conformed to Yeshua, in word and in deed, in actions, and so forth, that this becomes the guarantee, the proof, that God is at work in us, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. For all who are in Messiah will show a continual increase in living sanctified lives, of which serving the Lord and each other, as he has instructed, is an essential characteristic. Gordon Fee, in his commentary, puts it this way. Their giving to him, he's talking about them bringing things to Paul while he's in prison, is an expression of love of the gospel at work in their midst. I thought that was a nice way that he put it. The gospel at work. You see, the gospel isn't just at the beginning and then it, and then it no longer has its, uh, its potent uh, aspect within the life of a believer. No. The gospel is the sum, is the whole of who we are and who we are in the Messiah. And we seek, therefore, more and more to live out that gospel. He goes on to say for Paul, every time they do so, it is, that is, bring him uh, what he needs, it is also evidence of fruitfulness of the kind for which he prayed in the first chapter in verse 11. Such fruitfulness has the effect of being entered on the divine ledger as interest. That's why he's talking about uh, accrue to your account as the certain indication of the increase of their faithfulness, which will find its full expression at the coming of the Messiah. So as we grow in faithfulness and fruitfulness, it doesn't mean that we have more salvation. It means that we're proving who we are as those who are born from above. And so you could look at it as gaining interest. (laughs) We already have a full bank account. But as we live for the Lord, and as we suffer for the Lord, if need be, as we are living witnesses of his grace in this world, he adds to our rewards, if you can put it that way. Actually, Paul's primary interest in writing these words is not to suggest that their reward in eternity will be enlarged, but rather that their obedience and actions of love by helping to meet his physical needs, even when such help could single them out for persecution, 
is further proof of the genuine character of their faith. It's, we could use this metaphor. It's like when you uh, put a lock on the door and then you put another lock on the door and then you put an alarm on the door. What are you doing all that for? To make sure no one breaks in. It isn't that you're enlarging the door. It's that you're making it more and more secure. And I think that's the metaphor that Paul is using here. That their proof, the proof that they loved the Lord and that they were willing to go out beyond what was required of them to help Paul was yet one more proof that the Lord was really at work in their hearts. Paul says in Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship, created in Messiah Yeshua for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. God has set forth those very things that he desires of us. And he brings that to us by the scriptures, by the leading of the Spirit, by those that uh, encourage us within our communities and our friends who are believers in the Lord and so forth as we fellowship together. He prepared how we are to walk in the Spirit, how we are to serve Him by serving others. And when we do that, our the reality of our eternal salvation is made all the more secure. Another lock on the door in which we can rejoice and know that it can never be taken away from us. Here, once again, we see that Paul emphasizes the utter necessity for those who confess Yeshua as Lord and Savior to be a regular part of a believing community of believers. For the very meaning of this text is that one of the marks that the Philippian believers were genuine in their faith is that they together, as a united community of faith, ministered to Paul in his current needs. And he finds in this a mark of their true desire, first of all, to obey the Lord, from which flowed their willingness to aid Paul. What cannot be accomplished by individuals is often possible to be undertaken by a united community of believers in Yeshua. And this is why he says on a regular basis, he indicates throughout the scriptures that we are to uh, love one another, we are to bear each other's burdens, we are to care for one another, and we also find in the scriptures that we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Now, I recognize there are exigencies in that, where someone lives in an area where no fellowship uh, exists and so forth, but even what we're doing tonight can be a step in that right direction, to have some kind of interaction with other believers, caring and uh, for them, bearing each other's burdens as best we're able to do, praying for one another, and sharing the good things of God with each other. And yet, nothing really <laughs> substitutes for life-to-life, face-to-face uh, kind of community where we encourage one another and help each other to continue walking in this world as God intends. The words of Yeshua in Matthew 6, 19-21 help us understand Paul's emphasis when he characterizes the love of the Philippian believer shown to him as profit, which increases to your account. This reminds one of the words of Yeshua in Matthew 6, 19-21. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. 
What does he mean? What does Yeshua teach us here that we're storing up treasures in heaven? Well, it means that we're proving ourselves to be true children of God as our lives conform to this kind of living, which we can put in one word called sanctification, becoming more and more like Yeshua. That's a treasure. And that secures in our own thinking, in our own mind, who we are in the Messiah. If we find no fruit when we inspect our own lives, if we find no spiritual fruit, we ought to question where we are with the Lord. Sometimes we become negligent. Sometimes we come, become weak or lazy. And when we take a inventory of how are we doing in terms of serving the Lord, by helping others, by loving Him, by obeying Him, by seeking Him on a regular basis, if we see that we're falling short, that means that the Spirit of God is urging us forward, and He does that for all who are His. In this text, Yeshua is not negating the storing up of treasures. He is simply emphasizing the better place to store them. A life of faith which issues in humble obedience to God provides treasures in this world as well as in the world to come. Thus, our motivation for obeying God is not that we should receive some greater reward in the sweet by and by. The reward which God promises to the righteous is unending communion with Him. If in this world we do not treasure the communion we already have with the Almighty, it is almost certain that we have a wrong idea of what constitutes treasures in heaven. Yeshua is not negating the story up, the storing up of treasures. He's simply emphasizing the better place to store them. I did that twice. All right, let's go to verse 18. But I have received everything in full, and have in abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Why does he call it an acceptable sacrifice? Because this was the very essence of the animal sacrifices that were going on if they were done correctly. When you brought an animal to be sacrificed upon the altar as God intended and as God commanded when the temple was standing, you gave up something very valuable. But you did that in order to obey God and as a foreshadow of the very sacrifice of Yeshua himself, which is why he's called the Lamb of God. So, what did you gain in the temple period by giving up an expensive animal to obey him? You showed your willingness to put him first. That had to be the work of the Spirit, the work of God within that individual's life. Now, some did it just out of, oh, it's just what we do. And that's happening today, isn't it? There's a lot of people who think that they're just fine with everything because they go to church on Sunday. Or some of them go to church on Saturday. And there's no real evidence in their life of a change and a desire to serve the Lord regardless of the cost. As long as the prosperity gospel remains active in our world, the whole idea that if you accept Jesus as your Savior, everything's going to be wonderful and you're going to be rich and so forth and so on, 
it totally flies in the face of what the scriptures teach. The scriptures don't say we're going to have a terrible life, but it says in this world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. The KJV had it. Yeshua says, I have overcome the world. Yes, in this world, there will be tribulations. There will be times of trouble and sickness and so forth and so on. But it is how we persevere through those things. And that's what Paul's teaching us here. Even as he's in prison, he says, I've understood how to be content. And I've come to the conclusion that I can be content even in this situation. Why? Because God had not forsaken him. Do we have that same faith? That is the inevitable mark of genuine faith in the Lord, that we persevere, that even when we go back a few steps, even when we fail, even when we fall, we seek forgiveness and we move back in seeking to become more and more what he intends us to be. Paul says, I have received everything in full and have an abundance. In the Greek text, the phrase, I have received everything in full, is actually only two words. Apeko and Manta. The Greek word apeko has been found on receipts from ancient times, meaning paid in full. They would just put one word, they would write one word at the bottom and give it to the purchaser and say it's been paid in full. So Paul uses a term that was very, very common in his day. So once again, Paul is using monetary terms to describe his gratefulness for the gifts sent to him from the Philippian community. In other words, you did everything you needed to do. Everything has come, is is complete what you intended it to be. But he is doing so, as the previous context makes witness, not to solicit further gifts from them, nor, as the previous context makes clear, to suggest that they needed to increase the amount they sent. Rather, he uses his well-known term, that paid-in-full term, he uses the well-known term to express the overabundance of thankfulness he has for their care and love shown to him. In other words, by using that word, he's kind of saying, you did it all. <laughs> you couldn't have served me any better. In similar manner, the phrase, and have an abundance, is actually only one word in the Greek, parasuo. This word is used to describe having all that is needed and even more. Paul has used this same word three other times in his epistles. Well, twice in Philippians, and this I pray that your love may abound still more and more. One word. In real knowledge and all discernment. Or Philippians 1.26, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in the Messiah Yeshua through my coming to you again. So it's to have an abundance. It's to have more than you would ever imagine. And then in Philippians 4.12, just in our own chapter, I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. So that's what the word means. He says, and, and have an abundance. Have more than you can imagine. It seems clear that Paul's use of these superlative expressions is both to describe his great joy for the gift he has received, as well as to emphasize what he has stated before, namely, that his true joy and confidence in God is not dependent upon earthly treasures. For by faith in the Lord, he has become able to, tru in, to truly, uh, he has become able truly in him 
and have joy in his life even when material things are lacking. He has become, he's gained the ability, the true ability to withstand the problems, to be all that he intended to be in the Messiah and still have joy in his life when material things are lacking. That's what he means. As I studied this, I thought to myself, could I do that? (laughs) How well am I doing at rejoicing even in times where there's difficulty? It's something we have to be constantly reminded of. That God has his plans for us and his plans are good. And we need to trust him for that. And we need to rejoice in what he has promised us. And that's what Paul is teaching us here. Surely the apostle stands before us all as a testimony of God's grace and provision, as well as one who had a strong and growing faith in God's provision, enabling him to rejoice even when in humble means. That shows real growth and maturity in the Lord when we're able to do that. It doesn't mean there aren't times when we sorrow. Of course we sorrow. We sorrow with those who are sorrowing, and we sorrow when we... When there are things in this world which go uh, so deeply against us. But it doesn't mean that we give up. It means we remain strong. And even through that difficult time, we grow in our ability to trust God and to praise him. Paul goes on to say, I am amply supplied having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent. The NASB, New American Standard Bible, translates a single Greek word, plerao, as amply supplied, which gives the proper sense. Paul's point is that the gift they sent has met his current needs in even a greater way than he could have expected. And this is a lesson for us as well. When we give to others, when we help each other uh, within the community or other believers, and we do so to the best of our ability, we may not ever know how much that helps them. But here, Paul says, what they gave to him was essential. But it was fantastic. He said, he's been amply supplied. It's more than he could have imagined. So once again, Paul points to Epaphroditus as a faithful and obedient servant of the Lord, whose faithful service gladdened Paul by bringing necessary things for maintaining his life in prison. But it is eminently clear that for Paul, the faithful service exemplified by Epaphroditus was proof of God's work among the Philippian community, a work that had grown from the seeds Paul was privileged to plant himself. Just have to say that any of us, all of us who are teachers or leaders, there's one thing that gives us great joy. It's when we see the lives of others blooming for the Lord. And even those that have had difficulties and those that have gone through difficult times uh, are able to stand up underneath it and to remain uh, fervent in their faith and in their praise for the Lord and so forth. This is a great, great uh, gift that's given to those who lead and teach. And you can imagine that Paul was thinking the same thing. A fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Paul now turns from the language of banking, right, 
that you get more profit, to the language of offering sacrifices in worship to God. Those who brought sacrifices as merely a perfunctory religious duty, but with no true heart of worship to God, no doubt thought their outward religious actions were sufficient, but in reality their sacrifices were a stench in God's nostrils. Isaiah describes disobedient Israel with these words. He says in Isaiah 65, 3-5, a people who continually provoke me to my face, offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on bricks, who sit among graves and spend the night in secret places, who eat swine's flesh, the broth of unclean meat is in their pots, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am holier than you. These are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Have you ever been close to a fire? <laughs> Maybe you were camping and you had a campfire or whatever, and it started to uh, smoke and smoke came into your face. When that smoke comes into your nose, it's not any fun. That's exactly what Isaiah is using the picture, that God, he, he, he considers that a stench when people think their self-made so-called religion is what he uh, bows to. How do we know if we have the true thing? It's when we're willing to confess our sins, to make things right, and to serve him as he intends. As we grow in our desire to do his will, that becomes the proof that there is the work of the Spirit within us. And that's what Paul is teaching us here. The Philippians had it, and you have to believe that Paul was very, very joyful that the work that he had accomplished there amongst them by teaching them the truth of the Scriptures, that Yeshua was and is truly the Messiah that was promised to Israel, and that he came and that he died and he was in the grave, and he rose again, and he ascended on high. All are proofs that everything that he has said, everything he has promised is true. And our faith is bound up in that, giving our life to him. In contrast, the community, in contrast to those who are just, you know, playing religion, giving their sacrifices without any meaning, in contrast, the community of Philippi evidenced true spiritual growth as they matured in their faith, a faith that was marked by obedience to the word, which included serving one another and doing so even when it could have put them as a target for persecution. Right? I mean, why was Paul in prison? <clears throat> he was in prison for his faith. And those who came to help him, those who came to give him food, could have been targeted as well. But they didn't let that deter them. They did it because they knew this is what God wanted and what he commanded, to help one another, to serve each other, and to care for one another. When Paul uses the language of a sacrifice upon the altar that is a fragrant aroma, accepted and well-pleasing to God, he is describing the blessed life of all who live out their faith before a watching world. What a tremendous prize we have to consider that living out our faith in obedience to God is that which is like a fragrant aroma to him. Indeed, serving God in truth, living out our faith that gives him the glory, caring for one another, and shining as lights in this darkened world, while surely not always easy, and may be rejected and scorned by others, is that which brings true joy to our Heavenly Father. Have you ever 
have you considered this? That we have the privilege, the ability in the Spirit of God within us and the life that the new life that has been given to us to bring joy to God. And I know this is an enigma. God doesn't change. God is the infinite in all of his attributes. So he's infinite in his joy too, right? So how can we bring him joy? But it's that he is a relational God. Our God is relational. He is with us and in us. And he wants to be near us and we to be near to him. And this is why, again, joy it comes into the heavenly realm when we do what we are supposed to do. This reality ought to encourage us greatly to grow in our faith and to live it out in every aspect of our lives that we might please him more and more. Remember the reformers had the five solas. One of them is sola deo gloria, only for the glory of God. When we say only, we mean ultimately for the glory of God. All that we do is to bring glory to him so that others will know what a great God we serve. And then for tonight, finally, verse 19, and my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Messiah Yeshua. Why do you think he ends this paragraph with this? It is because sometimes we wonder, well, if I give, if I help somebody and I'm giving them things that I need, am I going to be in need now? In other words, do I have to stockpile and stockpile and stockpile in order to have some kind of assurance that I'll have enough for the future? Well, there's nothing wrong with saving. There's nothing wrong with being wise with what we have. But when we have the opportunity and we're urged by the Lord and by good uh, uh, circumstances and so forth to help others, we shouldn't think, oh no, now what am I going to do? We must do it wisely. But still, Paul brings this verse to tell us that when we give, God will supply the needs that we have. As Paul offers his praise and thanksgiving to the Lord for the love and faithful help of the Philippian community, he adds a final song of praise by reminding the believers in Philippi and us that they can count upon God to supply everything necessary for them to continue growing in their faith and in service both to each other as well as to those who are outside of their local community. Though Paul in his current circumstances could not reciprocate their gifts by sending his own to them, right? He couldn't say, well, I'll give you something back. No, he doesn't have the means to do that. He gives them something of even greater worth. Though he cannot help meet their current needs in the same manner as they have met his own needs, he can assure them that God will surely both meet their needs and bless them for their helping him. Thus it appears that the reason Paul refers to God as my God is to encourage his readers to know that they are dependent upon Paul himself to help them when in need, but that they should continue to rely ultimately upon God to do so. In this sense, God becomes the one who reciprocate for Paul. In other words, it would be like if he said, I can't repay you, but my my uh, father will. <laughs> my earthly father will. You could hear somebody saying that. I don't have the money, but dad will pay you. He's saying that that's why he says, my God. He's not saying that God is his in a way that he is no one else's. No. What he's saying is, God cares for me and God will meet my needs. And therefore, he will make sure that what you have done is blessed. All too often, it would seem that this verse has been interpreted to mean that God will give to those who are his anything for which they ask. 
God will supply all your needs. But we must read this verse in light of what Paul wrote in the previous verses, namely, that as an example of a faith in God that works in real life, Paul has learned, quote, to get along with humble means and, quote, learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, having abundance and suffering need. We learned that in the previous context in verse 12. We know that in God's good providence, he may bring upon us difficult times for us to learn lessons and to strengthen our faith. And thus, as we persevere through such struggles, we are enabled to give him the glory, for it is by his power that we prevail. And the verse ends then with, according to his riches and glory in Messiah Yeshua. Once again, Paul returns to the language of the bank when he refers to the riches in glory. The point is that God's ability is never limited when it comes to meeting every possible need his children may encounter in this fallen world. Or to put it another way, his bank account is infinite. There's nothing that we need if he considers that we truly need it that he can't supply. Yes, he can meet all of our needs according to his power, his riches, his love, his mercy in heaven. And he does so in accordance with the work Yeshua has accomplished, the work of securing eternal redemption for all who are his. It's just it kind of beyond us. It boggles our minds to think what eternity will be like, to be with him forever, and no longer with sin, no longer with death, all the way that God intends it to be. That's our hope, our goal. And it is assured because he has promised it. Moreover, Yeshua is always interceding on behalf of those for whom he died. And his prayers assure that all who are his will be with him forever. As Paul teaches us in his epistle to the Romans. And we close with this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Messiah Yeshua is he who died, yes, rather who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. What is the focus of his intercession? That all that he has purchased will be his, and he'll lose none that he will enable all who are his to persevere and to continue to show forth their faith and ultimately to be with him for all eternity. All right. Well, thank you so much for being with us tonight and uh, look forward to being with you again next week as we draw to an end this study uh, in the Paul's epistle to the Philippians. It's been a good study, and I hope we have final two weeks uh, with uh, a good way to wrap up this uh, great epistle. So thanks again for coming. Look forward to being with you again next week as we continue our study in this book of Philippians. <laughs>